This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. It's been just about nine months since the economy initially shut down last spring in response to the growing COVID-19 pandemic. The economic devastation was immediate and intense. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs. Anxiety consumed the country. We watched helplessly as New York hospitals were overrun with sick patients and we grieved with those healthcare workers exhausted and scared who were unable to save lives. The shock of that moment and the potential for even greater losses over the next few months prompted an immediate response from Washington. In late March, Congress acted fast to pass an historic relief bill totaling $2.2 trillion. It included one-time cash payments to individuals, increased unemployment benefits and aid to small businesses with the Paycheck Protection Program. Experts agree that this quick infusion of cash into the paralyzed economy was critical. But that moment of collective action and unity of purpose has since dissolved. Mask wearing has become the latest symbol of our partisan allegiances. Wear one if you support the blue team. Refuse to put one on if you support the red one. Meanwhile, bipartisan agreement on another stimulus package remains out of reach. This despite the fact that the pace of job growth has slowed and more and more American households qualify as food insecure. It should come as no surprise that the pandemic has revealed some of the structural inequities that exist and have always existed in our economy. On one hand, we've seen the stock market surge to record-breaking levels. Meanwhile, more than 8 million Americans have gone into poverty since May. It's also easy to become jaded when we hear a long list of numbers. But those numbers represent people with real lives and stories. I was thinking of what I can do next. Looking for another job, my kids are home. It's not safe for them to be home and me going out and working. I was behind for rent, for gas, for internet. I literally was worrying how I'm going to feed them. We all lost our health insurance. Some of us are going without health insurance and some of us are either paying some subsidized amount or paying, like in my case, I'm paying the full amount every month, which is very difficult to try and balance my budget with. I have reached out for help because I fell on hard times due to this pandemic. I lost my job, I have no income, and I had nowhere else to turn to. My name is William Spriggs. I'm a professor of economics at Howard University and the chief economist to the AFL-CIO. I asked Professor Spriggs to walk us through the current economic picture. The industries that were most directly affected by the issues of orders to shut down or that lost business because people didn't feel comfortable in public spaces, they have been slowly recovering. The hardest hit in terms of number of workers was the restaurant industry, which is huge. We have to remember that at the beginning of the year, we had as many people working in restaurants as the entire United States manufacturing workforce. They have slowly recovered. They are still way below where they were before. Retail had been making recoveries since it was another one of those hard hit areas. But last month, because we normally expect retail businesses, the brick and mortar stores, to add workers in the Christmas rush and get ready for Black Friday, a lot of businesses hired earlier in anticipation that they would have to do 
discounting ahead of Black Friday to keep people involved in shopping. And we didn't see the normal Christmas spike. And so actually the numbers came in when you adjusted them seasonally to be a lower number. So retail has stopped making progress. We're still not making progress in hospitality, people who work in hotels. And we're still behind on most of the other personal services and in transportation. On the other hand, because this wasn't a real economic collapse in the sense the market collapsed, we've had areas that have grown because people are not buying in stores. We've seen a big spike in transportation and warehousing. Those are the fulfillment centers of Amazon, Walmart, and others who have successfully or already had a model of online shopping. So it's this mixed bag. It's pretty clear that the structural inequities that have been part of the U.S. economy for some time now have always been there. We're just really laid bare and in this uh, COVID era and seem to be getting even worse. Where do you see things? Well, I see the turn in the virus in part influenced by a sense that it had racially disparate effects, that black workers were dying at far higher rates than other workers, somehow or another, I believe, gave a sense that this was not as critical as everybody thought it would be. And that's part of what I believe turned this into a partisan issue, as opposed to understanding it as this national crisis, since we're about to lose more people from this virus than our casualties during World War II. And I am fearful because what should have been unifying, this should have been like all the science fiction movies that everybody grew up on where the aliens come to Earth and try and kill us, and the world you know, comes together and beats the aliens. Well, the virus is the alien. And and so I worry because this has become partisan and because the pain is not equally felt in all communities, there will be this tendency to accept the pain and the suffering and the loss and attempts to solve the problem become a partisan issue and make it difficult to pull together do the right thing on the virus so we can do the right thing on the economy. And part of doing the right thing on the economy is making sure that we are unified, that we see this as this outside force that has attacked our economy and that we understand if households can't go to grocery stores, if people aren't paying rent, this affects the whole economy. And so supporting people becomes important for the economy. Instead, in this partisan world, it's become the typical whether people are worthy. And our sliding scale on worthy has become disturbing. It used to be, well, you know, there's the um, deserving poor. Now it's the deserving workers. We accept poor workers. We accept that. Now, Now we're into you have to be a deserving worker. We have economists now saying, at least this is a recent survey by Reuters of their economists that they surveyed, 
with the majority of them saying we're going to get we're going to see the economy reach pre-COVID levels within a year. What do you think about that? They're optimistic. No one else thinks that. The OECD doesn't think that. Um, the World Bank doesn't think that. Uh, it will be well into 2022 when we can piece everything back together because it's going to be late into the summer before we have enough of the vaccine that people are going to feel confident enough and businesses will feel confident enough to get meetings going so that people are on airplanes, so people feel comfortable going to hotels and going back to Disneyland and Disney World and going on vacation and sitting inside at restaurants. So it's going to be somewhere around early 2022 before everything is back up. And we need patience with the economy as it gets to there. The Fed has signaled they're going to be patient. And we need those with the fiscal strings so that what the Fed is doing doesn't exacerbate inequality. Because if the Fed is the only one with the oar in the water, the canoe only goes in one direction, which is to increase inequality. And we've seen that. Our billionaires have become trillionaires in the face of this because we don't have both oars in the water. And that works because they're going to be able to buy up a whole bunch of stuff and the stock market is continuing, will be continuing to do well. Meanwhile, a whole bunch of regular Americans continue to suffer. Correct. I just want to get you, as, as we end this here, to sort of think ahead now beyond, let's say we are in 2022, the economy is back to the place where it's been. It seems to me that the challenge that we have and, and so many Americans have is the folks who came back from the 2009 recession still hadn't gotten their feet fully planted before this big COVID wave hit them. And now to kind of come back up from that, what do you see as the next challenge? Like what's, what is the next big wave out there that could make it difficult for them to ever feel like they're really back? Well, if we don't give the aid to state and local governments that they really need, we won't reinvest. We won't make up for the investment that we have frozen. We know the disparities for kids at home based on their income has been huge and growing. And so we have to put enough money back into our schools to help those kids make up ground. But that's not going to happen unless Congress does the right thing. We know that we're going to end up with a drag on the economy because of state and local governments. And we have to remember, unemployment insurance is countercyclical. It helps when the economy goes down. As the economy starts to expand, it becomes a drag, especially in this situation because the state unemployment insurance systems are totally bankrupt and they have to pay back that trust fund. They have to rebuild their trust funds. And we already saw from the Great Recession what North Carolina, Florida, Missouri, and other states did. They made the program less accessible, which is part of the reason we have the difficulty with handling this situation. So people will find themselves further behind because the next time they go to get unemployment checks, it's going to be a much worse program. It's not going to be the safety net the economy needs. If we allow people to become homeless, to be evicted, it's no telling when they'll ever 
get back because we will have ruined their credit scores. We would have wiped them out. When people get evicted, you know, they lose their possessions. They get evicted. They lose so much of their possessions. So it's not just that they're going to need an extra down payment to get the next apartment. It's not just that they have to figure out how can I get to work if I don't even have a roof over my head and therefore it may be harder to reattach them to the labor force, but we're going to have them even losing the little tiny bit of possessions they had. So it's going to be a much rougher road if we don't compensate the losers in this equation. And these were sacrifices we all benefited from. We all benefited from keeping the disease from being worse than what it would have been. Well, Professor Spriggs, I really appreciate you taking the time walking us through this. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. William Spriggs, professor in the Department of Economics at Howard University. He also serves as chief economist to the AFL-CIO. summer, Congress has been at loggerheads over additional federal economic aid to those impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. In fact, it's hard to remember a time when the two sides haven't been fighting over the contours of a stimulus bill. And that waiting will continue for at least another week as Congress has left for the weekend without a deal. Here to help us understand the sticking points is Heather Long, an economic correspondent at The Washington Post. Hi, Heather. Welcome back. Hi, Amy. Good to be back. I wish the news were better. I know. I wish it were, too. And in fact, the one issue I'm going to start with with you is the latest jobs numbers, which were also pretty bleak this week. That's right. Uh, 1.4 million Americans applied for new unemployment benefits. So they hadn't filled out an application before last week. That is the highest number since uh, mid-September. And it's going in the wrong direction. Uh, We obviously want to see more people getting back to work. And that's a signal to us that the complete opposite is happening. We are still seeing over a million people getting laid off in this country and needing to turn to government aid. Why do we think those numbers rose so quickly in this last month? A big part of it is the story we all know. We can see it in our own communities as these COVID cases rise and as uh, governors are having to make these tough choices to restrict people going to gyms, restrict people going to restaurants again. A lot of places are takeout only for restaurants again. And you can see it in the small business data. Uh, There's been a big cutback in hours in small businesses and a lot of small businesses have had to close again. As I said in the opening, it seems as if Congress has been fighting over these two particular sticking points for months and months, which is Republicans saying we need to have a liability protection shield for businesses, for schools, and Democrats saying we're not going to agree to anything that doesn't have more state and local funding. So why can't, after all this time, they come to some sort of agreement where both of them can feel like they got something, if not everything they wanted. 
I that I'm with you. Why not? But uh, I think the really hard one is this liability shield because the details matter. What it would do mm. is it would prevent workers or customers who get sick at a business place from being able to sue that company uh, for not following the rules, for not taking enough protections around the coronavirus. And you sort of understand uh, universities and schools and hospitals they don't want to close if they're flooded with a bunch of, of these lawsuits and they feel like they really tried to do the right thing. But at the same time, we don't want it so that if a company didn't do the right thing, didn't give workers masks, didn't try to put those plastic shields up, do the basics, you know, it's, and some people are getting sick. It, it seems unfair to prevent people from being able to uh, to sue if they were truly wrong. So that's where a lot of this is mm. is really boiling down to. And uh, I will say that what's interesting is Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, kept warning that there would be a flood, you know, that there would be a huge number of these lawsuits. And interestingly, there isn't a liability shield right now, and we've only seen a trickle. And we've barely seen any filed so mm. far. So it's kind of a, a weird straw man to be to, to, if people are so worried about this flood of lawsuits when we just haven't seen any evidence of it so far. So let's say that they actually do find a way to agree on something bef- by next week or before the end of the Congress. How quickly could people who need this aid, specifically the unemployment insurance, expect to receive it and and potentially also we're hearing about a one time another one time stimulus payment. Well, the good news is it could happen pretty fast and by pretty fast I mean probably 2 to 3 weeks to start getting some of that extra unemployment money out. Mm-hmm. So they've talked about doing an additional $300. So if somebody's already in the system, they are currently receiving money, that all that needs to happen is literally plugging in the extra 300 on top of what they would have already received anyway. Uh, stimulus checks, again, we've already done one round of those. They managed to get them out to close to 160 million families. The U.S. Treasury now has quite a few people's bank accounts. So that should roll out faster if they do decide to go down that route. There's a debate about doing a $600 uh, payment as opposed to 1200 like last time. And then what about those PPP payments? As we're saying, a lot of small businesses are struggling a lot. That's a good point. There is $300 billion in the current bipartisan deal for small business. But you're right, that would probably need to have another application process. Mm. Uh, and that has been slower. That's been slower than anybody like would like to see, uh, particularly if you're, I think, so many businesses, and you probably had some on your show are, and talked to some business owners. Uh, it's, it's do or die moment right now at the holidays. And if they, I think a lot lot of people are making decisions. Am I going to stay open after January 1st? You've done such great reporting on the real people behind these stories. And if you could talk to us about the folks who are hurting the most, it seems, are women and especially women at home with small children. I agree. Um, I'll just say that, as we reported Monday, 12 million Americans are five, uh, roughly $5,000 right now behind on rent and utilities. And we profiled two moms with kids. And I, I just don't, they said, what do I do? And I'm on the phone, like, I don't know. And you were able to help some of them. People reached out to you and asked how they could help, right? 
I'm happy to say there's a lot of good Americans in this country, uh, both those women who were profiled in our article, a mom in Michigan and a mom in Nashville. Readers poured money in. Uh, They were both several thousand dollars behind, and readers gave over $20,000 to each woman, Mm. and singer Taylor Swift personally donated $13,000 to each woman. Wow. So in between dropping a new album... She helped out as well. It's good to hear. Well, Heather Long, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Amy. Heather Long is an economics correspondent at The Washington Post. COVID-19 cases are surging, and the U.S. has recently broken the daily record for coronavirus deaths twice. Since March, we've made it a point to hear from people dealing with the fallout of the pandemic. Just last week, more than 800,000 people filed for state unemployment benefits. About a third of those who are unemployed have been out of work since the beginning of the pandemic. All of this as a number of federal measures put in place earlier this year, like a moratorium on home evictions and expanded unemployment benefits, are set to expire. A one-time stimulus check wasn't enough to bridge the gap for millions of individuals that have lost work since March. It was like uh, from 35 hours to 40, uh, and now it's 10 hours. 10 hours. What are you going to do with 10 hours? It's not going to pay you even one single bill. Hyatt is a single mother living near Boston. Before the pandemic, she was working about 40 hours a week in customer service at a community rec center. The pandemic came and it's just like it crashes down everything and I couldn't pay my bills, electricity, internet, gas. But my worry was like when um, the winter was coming, I was thinking how I'm going to keep the home warm myself and my children. The eviction notices she's received keep her up at night. Nobody will understand the struggle of a single woman with three children and less money coming in and more coming out. Hyde has received rent and heating assistance from an organization called Action for Boston Community Development. They've also hired her part-time so she can work from home and near her children. But even with two jobs, she's worried about getting by. Whatever it comes, it comes to me like unemployment and wherever the stimulus check, it went back to the land road. I was paying my rent until August. After that, I couldn't. With one single mom with three children, you will never be able to keep up. $2,000 plus 500 just for the tank oil. How are you gonna keep up with all that? How are you gonna keep up with electricity, gas, internet, food? And she's not alone. More than 8 million Americans have gone into poverty since May. My name is Felicia Ball. I live in Harvey, Illinois. Felicia had been working as a custodian in a Sam's Club warehouse. Before the pandemic hit, she was used to working three 12-hour shifts a week from Friday to Sunday. She worked reduced hours for almost nine months and is now five months behind on her rent. When you're used to uh, income from a job being close to $1,000, to reducing it down to 450, then yes, it's a drastic loss in income. Like my bills was all caught up before the pandemic, but when the pandemic hit, it was another story. It was hard. I get help from 
my family members I receive food stamps so there'll be a, no problem with us eating it's pretty much right now I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul in my job I transport people with disabilities who for one reason or another cannot ride on a fixed route service and so they may be in a wheelchair or they may have a mental issue. Before the pandemic, Warren Haft was working as a paratransit operator in Portland, Oregon. For those of us that are still out, uh, this has been a very difficult and trying time. Warren was laid off in April after almost 17 years on the job. When Congress provided the additional $600, that wasn't just play money for a lot of my coworkers and myself. That was extra money that helped put food on the table, pay rent and pay bills. And the FEMA money that we got from the Trump executive order in August helped to again sort of supplement that money. But we've now gone months without being able to do that. And although he and many of his former colleagues want nothing more than to return to work, Warren's job prospects don't pay enough for him to get by. One of the frustrating things that we're encountering right now is that the job market that's out there in general pays far less than what we were getting paid. Most of the jobs out there that I could apply for pay less than what I receive on unemployment. Thanks to Warren, Felicia, and Hyatt for sharing their stories and their struggles. And we know many of you are struggling too. Have you had trouble keeping up with your day-to-day expenses since March? How are you doing? This is John. I'm from Reno, Nevada. My wages haven't gone up in 20 years, despite the fact that I have a bachelor degree. So the struggling part is an ongoing thing. I'll be happy when they give us some kind of assistance. Most of us are unemployed through no fault of our own. This is Zach in Providence, Rhode Island. Almost as soon as lockdowns and initial stay-at-home orders rolled out, the small education nonprofit I was working at here began to struggle financially. Today, I'm still unemployed and I'm barely hanging on. I'm aggressively pursuing work, but to no avail, and have burned through most of my savings. With approaching deadlines and only a small extension being passed on by Congress to delay my student loan payments, I'm pretty worried right now that I'm only months or maybe even weeks away from hitting the breaking point financially. Hi, my name is Natasha, uh, and I'm calling from Wichita, Kansas. I'm thankful to have maintained financial stability because my husband's job is secure and, and it pays well. My work in nonprofit housing, however, has seen housing insecurity just skyrocket. Um, and many of the families that I serve are in danger of losing their homes. So my fears aren't uh, really for myself at the moment, but I do worry about all my fellow Wichita. My name is Alex and I'm calling you from Highland Mills in New York. And I just wanted to say that as a person who is trying to survive on disability from government, from Social Security. It has been difficult with this pandemic, physically as well as financially. I'm having to spend money on additional items that I normally wouldn't have to buy, as well as physically is just harder. Everything is harder. When things are delivered to my home, I have to figure out ways to get it into my house and lots of other challenges as well. This is JP in La Jolla. We were able to get the loans, but now we have to pay them back. And we were promised at least part of it was going to be subsidized by the government, but it looks like we're going to have to pay it back. Also, we're going to have to pay taxes on it, and we can't write off, for example, employee costs against them. So we're getting double tax on the money that they loaned to us. Really great. 
Thanks for the calls, folks. We always appreciate you talking with us. When President-elect Joe Biden takes office in January, he faces both a public health and economic crisis. And key to his management of these dual crises are the people he's surrounding himself with. Alex Thompson is a national political reporter at Politico and co-author of the Transition Playbook. He's been following Biden's nominations closely and says there's a lot we can tell from who he's picked on his economic team. It's a lot of familiar faces is the first thing that I will say. You have Janet Yellen over at Treasury. You know, Barack Obama's pick to lead the Fed. You have Brian Deese to head the National Economic Council. Um, He also is an Obama veteran. Um, You have Cecilia Rouse, who uh, comes from Princeton, but also is an Obama and Clinton veteran. You have Jared Bernstein, who has been with Biden forever, who is on the Council of Economic Advisors with Rouse. And even, you know, Obama's former uh, head of the National Economic Council, Jeff Seintz, is the so-called COVID czar. Uh, But you imagine he's going to be in a lot of meetings about the economy and economic recovery. Mm -hmm. So, Um, I would say you're going to have a lot of people that have a lot of experience that we've seen before, but um, that some critics say, uh, you know, didn't exactly do the best job with the last economic recovery. Well, yeah. What kind of message then do you think he's he's trying to put forward, Alex? It's that why should we expect that their experience with one thing should tell us about their experience here? I mean, Biden's signal is that he is prioritizing experience and people that he considers to be crisis tested over fresh thinking. There aren't a lot of new novel voices coming in here. Probably the the person that is most uh, new would be Heather Boucher. She's going to be on the Council of Economic Advisors. She's sort of a, you know, a, a Gen X lefty. Um, she's been very popular in sort of left wing sort of, you know, Elizabeth Warren esque circles, but you know, she's just one voice on the council of economic advisors. She's not heading it. And, um, it's unclear actually how much, uh, influence she'll have versus how much she is there as a way of, of trying to signal to the left, Hey, you know, we're paying attention to you. And what kind of reaction have these picks gotten from two groups. One, Republicans on Capitol Hill. Obviously, many of these folks are going to have to go through Senate confirmation. And then, as you pointed to, the progressive left, who uh, there's been some rumblings that they're feeling as if their voices have really been shut out of the Biden inner circle. Isn't fascinating to watch the reaction of the left wing to these picks? Because it really is symbolic of Biden's entire sort of approach to politics over his career, which is we're going to find the exact center of the Democratic Party and plant our flag. So, you know, Janet Yellen is a perfect example of somebody that like that's not going to uh, you know, anger the left, but the, it's not going to satiate them either. You know, it, it makes it you know, there there's some grumblings on the left, but it, it's been hard for them to you know, uh, get really angry over any uh, over anyone. Probably the one they're most angry at is Brian Deese, who during the Obama years was arguing for you know more uh, you know uh, austerity and and some financial deregulation that angered parts of the left. But really, the left has been sort of I think uh, in some ways frustrated. There isn't a better target. It's not their ideal um, administration, but I think they've actually been hardened mm. that it they haven't been you know completely overruled and that's not the return of 
of Tim Geithner. Now, your question about Republicans on Capitol Hill, so far the reaction has actually been about with the economic team. The, the rest of the cabinet's different story, but the, the economic team has been pretty good with one very notable exception, which is um, Center for American Progress's head, Neera Tandon, who's been tapped to lead the Office of Management and Budget. Now, in normal days, a think tank president probably wouldn't uh, garner that much opposition, but Nira tweets a lot, and <laughs> and and she and she likes to fight a lot on Twitter, and she said some some pretty tough things about a lot of the Republicans who she needs to vote for her now. Um, it, it, she tweets so much that uh, John Cornyn, the number two Republican in the Senate essentially declared her nomination dead on arrival the day it was made. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you coming on, having this conversation with me. It's been really, really helpful. And we look forward to checking in with you once again as these confirmation hearings actually start to get set up. Looking forward to it. Alex Thompson is national political reporter at Politico and co-author of The Transition Playbook. If you lived in New York during the last election cycle, you probably know who Nicole Maliotakis is. We have returned the 11th Congressional District to Republican hands. And we will bring the Republican and conservative values that we hold so dear in our community to Washington. Today, she's Congresswoman-elect from New York's 11th Congressional District, which includes Staten Island and part of South Brooklyn. Maliotakis is joining a record number of Republican women who've been elected to Congress, and her first days in office will likely include a showdown regarding a COVID relief package. In recent weeks, Staten Island has seen the number of infected residents rise, and the COVID-19 death rate is now higher on Staten Island than any other borough in New York City. Unlike some of her colleagues who represent solidly red or blue districts, Maliotakis represents a purple one. I started by asking her about the issues that animated the 2020 campaign. Well, certainly law and order was a top issue in this campaign. Um, under Democratic Party rule here in the city and the state, uh, crime has skyrocketed due to a number of criminal justice reforms that have been put in place and have led to career criminals being released back onto our streets. Um, and so uh, people are seeing firsthand uh, how crime has skyrocketed. Everything from shootings to murders to burglaries are up uh, significantly. And they are very much concerned about that. And also a socialist defund the police movement that actually led to a billion dollars being cut from the NYPD budget. Let's talk about the, the other big issue, of course, which is is COVID and the pandemic and its impact. Recently, new data has come out showing that Staten Island has, has one of the highest uh, infection rates and, and one of the highest death rates, certainly the highest death rate in the in the city. Why do you think that is? And what do you think should be done to help make sure those numbers go down? Well, the, the track and trace program that um, has been in effect has identified that a large majority of uh, the COVID positives 
are from within the same households, that it is spreading within people's homes. You know, Staten Island is, uh, as I said, uh, not only a very family-oriented uh, community, but most people live in houses, and they could have multiple generations living in that same home. It's not uncommon for uh, large family sizes to live together uh, in under the same roof. So that is, I believe, part of the problem is that that family living, it's very different than, let's say, living in a studio apartment in Manhattan, just a, a single person. Um, so that, I believe, is part of the problem. I, I, I would suggest, and, and you know, what I do, is when I'm with my parents, I wear my mask. When I'm when I'm eating with them, uh, I, I always sit in a separate room just because they're elderly and they're vulnerable. Uh, and I take that extra precaution. And I think that people, you know, with this new data that's showing that it's spreading in living rooms, uh, that we need to take that into account and be mindful. I think some people come home and they they they're a little a little more lax because they're around their loved ones uh, and they may not you know, realize what's happening or, or, or someone who is, let's say, positive in the household, not being uh, properly separated from the rest of the family. Um, you know, so if, if someone's feeling symptomatic, um, then they, they need to get a test as soon as possible to, to rule out, you know, whether it's COVID or not, so they could take that extra precaution. There's been a high profile case in Staten Island with a pub owner who said that these orange zone restrictions were too onerous. The restrictions telling you that you have to only serve people outdoors. They can't come inside to eat. And um, you had been supportive of his protesting this. And and there were folks who actually sort of took things into their own hands and went into the bar and stood around and were packed together. How do you how do you balance this, though? What you're, you know, this idea that people have to take responsibility, as you said, yeah. for not bringing the disease into their own homes, and yet at the same time, they're the reason that these orange or whatever zones were created was to try to ensure that people don't get sick in a in a eating establishment and then bring it back to their house. Yeah, but the, so so the issue is that the tracing program has not identified restaurants as a source of the problem. It has not identified hair salons or gyms as a source of the problem. Yet in the orange zone, the governor has shut down all three. So I, I certainly think, look, I, I go to restaurants uh, and I'm cautious. I wear my mask, uh, you know, the, the tables are socially distanced um, and we take responsibility and we're cautious, right? Um, I, I, and, I, and that is the way any restaurant that's operating should be operating. So I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with people being jammed in a room uh, with no masks, not socially mm -hmm. distancing. I think that we need to be responsible. And the one way that we can actually, as the public, help these small businesses is be, by being responsible and following those guidelines when we are in these establishments. Um, so, so like Governor Cuomo on Monday said that hair salons and gyms are not where you're seeing a lot of the spread. So why are they being shut down in the orange zones? Uh, the second thing is uh, in terms of the restaurants, the tracers have not been able to identify that indoor dining is an, a source of the spread. Uh, they've been able to provide no data. We've made repeated requests uh, and they've they've not provided any information on you know what they're doing to justify this being uh, shut down. So so really, in my opinion, this is an arbitrary restriction uh, just based on that, based on the fact that they don't have data to support it. Um, and so so that I think is is the issue. Um, 
And I think that, you know, we just need to, we need to continue to work together. I think what I, what I, what I tell my, my friends, my constituents, you know, we need to abide by those safety guidelines. And that is how we're going to help, you know, our loved ones. That's how we're going to help our frontline healthcare workers. That is how we're going to help these small businesses. Um, but I'm very concerned about the governor potentially shutting all indoor dining citywide uh, as early as next week. He's he's considering it. I think that's very detrimental to our economy. We need more of a balanced approach to addressing this. And and what I had mentioned earlier would be my approach. Right. So you're saying, too, if, if an establishment puts up a sign that says, in order to come in here, you need to be wearing a mask, and, and the, that's just the bottom line. You're saying that's appropriate, and if someone's not wearing a mask, they shouldn't be in there. That ultimately, the rules of the establishment should be followed. You think that would be enough without the, govern, the government, whether it's the state or federal, making well, it a mandate? It's not the rules of the establishment. It's the CDC guidelines. Right. And they would put those up theoretically saying, look, the CDC tells us if we do indoor dining, we need to have masks. The only way you can come in here, you got to wear a mask. If people are complaining or saying, I refuse to do that, what recourse do those restaurant owners have to make sure that their their place is safe? Yeah, well, I mean, that's just they they don't allow people in if they're not following the CDC guidelines. I mean, I think that most restaurant owners I know, the restaurants that I've gone to, they've been very responsible uh, you know, they, they abide by all the regulations. They've they've set up social distancing. They've set up outdoor tents. Uh, they've they've, um, you know, in some cases, um, you know, maybe maybe even kept parties to small numbers. Um, they've made sure that their staff is wear- properly wearing their masks um, and they're ensuring that when people get up to a table to go to the bathroom, that they're, you know, wearing their masks. Uh, with, and so I think that you know, mo- most of the restaurants that I've been in, uh, they comply with the CDC uh, recommendations and they're being responsible because they want to, they want their business to stay open. They don't want to be shut down. They don't want to see, uh, you know, indoor dining be restricted. And so they're following those guidelines, but, you know, they, they need government to at least work with them. As you're watching this stimulus bill sort of plot along as it has for for months here in Washington. It may end up in front of you all when you come in for the new Congress. Um, what to you are the important things that are included in a stimulus bill? I, if you if you believe there should be one, I guess is the first place to start. Mm-hmm. And if, if it does end up that it is punted to the next Congress, how likely is it that you think there could be a bipartisan solution? How committed are you to making that happen? Well, I'm, I'm very committed. I'm hopeful that they will pass it in this Congress because time is of the essence. Mm-hmm. You know, unemployment mm-hmm. checks are going to be expiring at the end of this month. You're going to have uh, small businesses that are going to just close. Every day is, is a challenge. And the longer it takes for this PPP money to get to communities and to small businesses, um, the harder it's going to be for these guys to hold on. And I think that, you know, it's really important that time is of the essence that they pass a relief package now. I'm, I'm disappointed. You know, I'm disappointed that, you know, Nancy Pelosi really played politics with this and, and tried to put in all this ideological stuff for months and would refuse, I think, to negotiate in good faith. I think that she had some good offers coming from the White House, 
uh, that incorporated a lot of what they wanted, but left out the ideological stuff like, uh, you know, putting bail reform in there and a, a blanket release of convicted felons over a certain age, um, election law changes, like things that had nothing to do with COVID relief. And I think that that was really awful to, to witness this, that, you know, putting ideological uh, wish list ahead of the immediate needs. I mean, on, on a number of occasions, I think 41 times the House Republicans attempted to at least get language passed that would release already allocated PPP funds to already approved small businesses. And there are a couple in this district that have been waiting for PPP money, but because this language, simple language to release the money has not been passed, they've been waiting for months because you know there was that, that expiration date for distributing the money um, and it hasn't been extended that date. So that to me is horrible that they would put these small businesses in a situation where they can't receive this money uh, and and I always felt that, you know, the House should have put aside the differences and just passed that simple language. If they couldn't agree on the other stuff, at least pass simple language to do that part, since they can agree, I would think, that small businesses should receive this already allocated money um, as they worked on the other components. Uh, but I think that, look, I, I support a relief measure. I think it needs to be tailored. It needs to be specific to the needs of uh, Americans and struggling small businesses. I think that it, you know, it, it just, and it needs to pass swiftly and shouldn't include anything that's non-COVID related. Right. What about, I mean, one of the big hangups, obviously, that we've been hearing about, especially in the Republican Senate side, is money going to state and, and local, um, to states and localities. New York, obviously, very hard hit by the pandemic, especially early or in the spring, do you think that it is important to ensure that there is money in there for those communities that have already blown through their budgets and are looking at huge gaps? Yeah, look, I, I want, of course, I want my city and state to receive more federal funding. Uh, I also want to ensure that it's being spent properly. I think that there needs to be certain commitments certain restrictions in place to ensure that that money is going to be used appropriately mm -hmm. and to deal with the pandemic. Um, and so that's my position on it. I know, you know, even our MTA is struggling tremendously, our, which is our transit system here in New York is, yeah. is, is suffering significantly due to lack of ridership because the economy has been shut down. They need assistance. Uh, and I and I support some assistance going to them. But again, it has to be used appropriately um, and, and perhaps with restrictions in place. One of the things that I've suggested um, is right now there's no grant program from the state. Some states like California, New Jersey have offered some grant programs to small businesses that have been mandated to shut down. Uh, and, and, and here in New York, where we have these orange zones and red zones and Governor Cuomo continues to shut them down, there should be relief. And, and the, you know, these are small businesses that paid taxes for so many years and they deserve to get some of that money back if they're being shut down by government mandates. And so I, I, I believe that a, a portion of this money should be used toward providing some type of relief for those struggling small businesses that are being shut down no fault of their own. 
next week, the the Electoral College is, is going to certify the results. Um, what are your expectations? Do you think by next week, the, the president should concede, especially we are likely to get to a place where there are no more lawsuits that are pending? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, every day it seems that there's, you know, more witnesses, more evidence, there's affidavits. I think it needs to be heard. Um, you know, my, my concern is that there were so many in the Supreme Court, do you think or you're saying, I, 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 well, number one, the states are having hearings that should play out. Uh, but I do believe that, you know, if granted a court date that they should be able to, you know, it, it depends on which state we're talking about. And again, I'm, I'm in New York, so I don't know exactly what's happening in, in terms of the hearing processes in these, these states. But I do believe that any questions of irregularities and fraud need to be thoroughly investigated. I think there's nothing wrong with that, ensuring that, in fact, I think our republic deserves to have that done, make flushing out any concerns of irregularities or fraud. Remember, this election year is very different because a lot of rules, a lot of uh, laws changed to accommodate uh, more absentee ballots. And, you know, whether it's, you know, we have to make sure that people are submitting these absentee ballots are submitting them legally. Uh, I, I could tell you in my district, we found a number uh, of, of dead voters that voted via absentee ballot. Uh, and, and same thing has happened in other races in New York. So I, I, I'm not as familiar with what's happening in these particular states. Right. But I do believe that it needs to be flushed out and heard. And 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 so you don't think all of the other cases and all of the other, again, secretaries of state, state legislatures, others who have said, you know, we've done recounts, we've canvassed, we've gone through these affidavits. There's nothing there. Like, I guess my question is, when does it sort of end? How how are you going to feel like it has been resolved? Well, I think what's going to happen on uh, Monday with the Electoral College will be mm-hmm. a significant f- step, and we'll have to see how that all plays out. I mean, I, I think you know, we'll have to see w- w- if the president, uh, if his legal team uh, feel that they have uh, enough to move forward uh, in challenging. But I, you know, I think the Electoral College, once the votes are cast, probably um, would determine the future. I, I, you know, again, I, I think that you know we have to see how what plays out between now. And next week, and and that's I think will be very I think I think they'll answer itself. Nicole Maliotakis is the Congresswoman elect from New York's 11th district. This conversation is part of an ongoing series where we speak to new members of Congress ahead of their first days in office at politicswithamywalter.org/freshman. Special thanks to the WNYC local politics team for their help. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. And we had help this week from Ethan Oberman and Jackie Martin. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. And special thanks to the Action for Boston Community Development, the Illinois Association of Community Action Agencies, and the Amalgamated Transit Union for putting us in touch with some of the voices you heard on the show. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.